Thursday Arts Preview receives support from Craven's Coffee, featuring Costa Rica Mariposa, produced by the Garcia family on their family farm. For over 30 years, from farmer to roaster to you. Welcome to the Thursday Arts Preview, where the P is parenthetical. I'm your host, E.J. Ionelli. At the start of the year, the Idaho writer Tara Carr Roberts published her debut novel. Titled Wild and Distant Seas, it's a multi-generational exploration of a minor character in Moby Dick, augmented by a little magical realism. Moby Dick famously begins with the line, Call me Ishmael. But it takes us a few pages to learn the name of Wild and Distant Sea's opening narrator, Evangeline. So when I spoke to Tara by phone, one of the first things we ended up discussing was the significance of names. I was really deliberate in how I chose names for this book, in part because of that deliberateness at the beginning of Moby Dick with Call Me Ishmael, where it, it opens this whole door of is that his actual name? Why does he want to be called this? Uh, you know, what are the biblical ties there? What are the cultural ties? Um, so I had a lot of fun choosing names for characters in this book, um, though some of them did come from Moby Dick. I, I want to assure readers that you don't have to have read Moby Dick or liked Moby Dick to read this novel. But Mrs. Hussey, who is my main character and the main narrator, that last name and her character are from Moby Dick. She's uh, the only woman with any sort of extensive part in the whole novel, and her part is still quite small. Um, but I wanted to give her a, a meaningful and interesting first name, and I love the name Evangeline, which is what her name, when she eventually says it, is. You know, I like the idea that names have power, um, and where this is a book where there is magic in this world to some extent. I want to draw from a lot of those traditions where uh, naming things is a powerful thing to do, and having a name influences your your personality or your destiny in some way. I have four narrators in the novel. We start with Evangeline. The second, her name's Rachel, and that name actually comes also from Moby Dick, even though this character is not even vaguely in Moby Dick. Uh, but there is a ship that's important in Moby Dick that is named the Rachel, and so I, I drew that name out of that. Um, then the third character is named Margaret, but she is given the nickname Mara without her parents processing that the name Mara means bitter. Um, and that character was one of my favorites to write. I don't know that she'll be everyone's favorite to read. Uh, she tells her story from a different distance than the other characters and sometimes can be uh, very formal and very set in her ways, I guess. Um, and then the final narrator in the novel, her name is Antonia Annie, and she was the one where I took forever to name, and she also took the longest to write. Um, the original draft of this novel had actually two different narrators that I ended up fully deleting and replacing with her, and I felt like I didn't find what that section of the book needed to be until I gave her her name. And I'm intrigued by this process of revision where you said the, the final narrator, you began, then you deleted it twice. Was that simply a name change, or did you have a whole different personality for this narrator? I would say a whole different book in some ways. I had never written a novel before, and when I set out to do this, one of the scariest things to me is what if I have to delete a huge amount of it? And I did, and it was actually okay by the time I did it. Um, so I actually had two different narrators. There were originally five, and... Part of it was a structural issue, like the momentum of the novel wasn't working, and I was getting that feedback really clearly. 
but yeah, I fully deleted both of them. I moved the location of those sections. Um, I did carry over one character, but her context changed a lot. But the main character, her name, her power, her purpose in the book changed entirely during that revision. And I'm also curious as to why you chose Moby Dick as the peg on which to hang this. I mean, there are many other novels with underdeveloped characters that <laughs> maybe deserve a fleshing out. So why did you choose Moby Dick? Were you in the middle of a rereading and thought, you know, here's a kernel of something? So not a rereading, but a first reading. I had never read Moby Dick. I was an English major. I'm a book nerd, but I had always kind of said like, you know, no, not that one. There's lots of other books to read. So I slowly finished a master's degree, uh, like over the course of like nine years while I was working and raising my children. And the very last class I took was this 19th century novels course from Zach Turpin at the University of Idaho. And the first book we had to read was Moby Dick. And I was just like, oh, you're kidding me. Like I made it to like 34 years old without ever reading Moby Dick. And now I have to do it. Uh, and I was instantly surprised by the misconception I had of that novel. I really thought like, oh, you know, it's Ahab and the White Whale. and all that. But there was so much more to it instantly, especially in those early chapters where before we get to Ahab and the White Whale at all, we have this goofy dude uh, wandering around New Bedford and Nantucket looking for a ship to run away on and slowly making friends. And while I was doing that first reading of it, the character that jumped out to me was this innkeeper on Nantucket. And what really drew me to her is in the epigraph of the novel, this line that her husband being away, she's entirely competent to attend all his affairs. And I thought about her and thought about her and thought about her while I was reading the rest of the novel, where, of course, women disappear basically after she has her little moment of really slapstick comedy on the stage, which is funny because she's not necessarily comedic in my book. And when I had to write my final project for this class, I talked to Dr. Turpin and said, hey, can I write a short story? And he said, yeah, write me a sample and we'll see. And what I wrote became the opening scene of this novel. And he said, yeah, please write this. And what became the story I wrote in that class became the novel a couple of years later. And there is a, a parallel between Moby Dick and Wild and Distant Seas that in both cases, there is this quest. And in Moby Dick, it's the quest for the white whale. And in this book, Ishmael becomes the white whale. Ishmael becomes this quest for each narrator to some extent. I, I know that, yeah, without wanting to give too many narrative spoilers, there is a point when that quest is somewhat suppressed by a narrator. Um, so was that intentional, you know, creating this parallel between the white whale and then these four generations of narrators pursuing Ishmael to various degrees? It was intentional eventually. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the big challenges for me, having never written a novel before, was figuring out how to structure a novel. And I really approached it at first as like stacking short stories on top of each other because I knew how to write a short story. But as I started getting to the point where I needed to make them cohesive, um, that was a thread I kind of introduced, but what I was most interested in paralleling was how in Moby Dick, Ahab's quest is missing something. He is not, you know, there's so many different ways to read it, but what he's trying to accomplish is not necessarily ever going to fix the thing that he sees as wrong with himself. And that was something that was really interesting to me with these characters is whether they were hunting for Ishmael or avoiding hunting for Ishmael, 
that quest was in some way distracting or detracting from the other things that were happening in their lives and what they might have been able to do more effectively to feel secure in the world or feel confident in themselves. And uh, even though Ahab doesn't appear in this novel at all, and I did do that very deliberately, he is referenced, but he does not appear, even though a lot of other minor characters from Moby Dick are in the beginning. Um, I liked the idea of them seeking out Oscar Ishmael because Ishmael is in Moby Dick, a really erratic and elusive character. He disappears as a narrator for a huge chunk of the book, depending on how you interpret it. And each narrator creates their own idea of who and what he is that may have no relation at all to who and what he is in real life. And I think that's just an interesting way to explore all the ways that everybody <laughs> does that. We build up these narratives and we explain ourselves in ways that, you know, on examination might not make any sense at all, but they are what's motivating us at the moment. And, you know, finally, I have to ask, there's this element of the mystical that runs throughout the novel and kind of caught me off guard because I wasn't expecting mm -hmm. it. And so there are these elements of clairvoyance, but it takes different manifestations. Now, why did you feel as though that were a, an essential component as you were writing this? Did it help you achieve things narratively? Initially, you know, it comes from a selfish place. I, they say, write the books you want to read. And I love books that are weird and magical and mystical. And I really couldn't imagine writing something that wasn't but some of that does also you know as I as I kind of toyed with it and worked it into the book um, is recognizing that Moby Dick is a really mystical weird novel in all sorts of ways and especially in those early chapters Elijah who's a character who appears in my book is mentioned as a prophet and there's uh, a Wampanoag woman named Kistig who also appears briefly in my book who is mentioned in Moby Dick just in one line as a prophet and then yeah it, it gave me an opportunity to kind of explore this idea of how the power that people have, especially the power that women have, no matter how interesting or expressive or powerful or incredible it is, is often limited or challenged by the circumstances and systems of the world. You know, I think every woman is familiar with the feeling of walking into a room and realizing there's somebody there who sees you as limited or less just because you're a woman and the idea of playing with that you know through historical fiction but also through these women who have actual magical powers but still are limited by the worlds they live in are limited by the people they meet are limited by their families and limit themselves in some ways but then also how they circumvent that not necessarily through their magical powers but through other things they do in their lives and other people they meet became for me a really central an interesting thing to do as a writer. That was Idaho-based author Tara Carr Roberts. Her debut novel, Wild and Distant Seas, was published earlier this month by W.W. Norton and has just been named a Barnes & Noble Discover pick. She's reading at the Spokane Valley Barnes & Noble location on Saturday, January 13th, and she'll be at the 1912 Center in Moscow, Idaho on January 17th for another reading. Visit barnesandnoble.com or bookpeopleofmoscow.com for more details on either of those events. It's midwinter, which means the local film festival season is in full swing. Last week, we talked to Paul Fish of the Banff Film Festival, which runs this weekend. And this week, our cinematic guest is Neil Schindler of the Spokane Jewish Film Festival. 
The SJFF runs over two upcoming weekends, that's January 27th and 28th, and February 3rd and 4th, and also has an online component that extends through February 8th. This year marks the festival's 20th anniversary, and with 17 films in total, it's also the largest number of screenings that it's ever shown in a single festival. Neil came into the studio to preview some of the films they'll be showing this year, including the documentary Remembering Gene Wilder during the opening night gala event. Or should I say gala? Yes, there's been a lot of internal debate as to whether to pronounce it gala or gala or gala, <laughs> but I'll go with gala for now. Yes, so because it is the 20th annual, we want to celebrate that. And we are starting with an event unlike any that we've organized before. For opening night, we are going to have a silent auction with dozens, literally, of amazing items and experiences. One example being a stay for two at the Davenport Grand. Um, that will also be at the same time as a catered reception. Um, we're going to have Feast World Kitchen providing heavy apps, and we'll also have um, drink tickets. And then we will end up showing the film around eight, and it is Remembering Gene Wilder, which is a new documentary about, obviously, Gene Wilder, who I think for many or most people is a household name. And, you know, I think this film in a way is very typical of what we are trying to achieve with the festival, which is if you're not Jewish and if you know very little to nothing about what it means to be Jewish, this film can still have a lot of meaning for you and it can be a way to learn a little bit about Jewish identity. But just like Gene Wilder's career both was and wasn't about his Jewish identity, there were aspects of his Jewishness that really came out in his work. And then there were times when it really wasn't apparent or it wasn't important. I think that that's true for the film and for the festival in general. You can bring a lot of knowledge or a little knowledge about what it means to be Jewish and still get a lot out of the festival. That's our hope, right? It's really for the broader Spokane community. Yeah, and I'd like to talk about some of the other films that are going to be showing. There's My Neighbor Adolf. Mm -hmm. um, I wondered if you could give us a, a brief synopsis of this film because it sounds both funny and uh, a little dark. Yes, I'd be happy to. And, uh, you know, this is a film that I don't want to give away too much about, but I will say that the premise involves a Holocaust survivor who is living in Colombia in the, um, I believe it's the 60s, and he begins to suspect that his neighbor... Uh, who is German, may in fact be Adolf Hitler. And this premise sounds a little bit out there, but I do think that the film is really well balanced tonally, that there is that dark humor. There's also kind of the pathos and sort of a dramatic sense as well. And one of the things that several films we're showing deal with that I don't see that much in film is the way in which the Holocaust decades later has an, still has a lasting or enduring effect on people, whether they're survivors, whether they're Jewish, whether they're not Jewish. Um, the film Where is Anne Frank is a very good example. We're showing that online. And that takes place in the present, but it examines the legacy of Anne Frank in the place where she lived now, you know, so many decades removed from when her story happened. And I think that's a very different view, just as my neighbor Adolf is, from films that take place during the Holocaust or are documentaries about the Holocaust, which have their place, but there are so many of those. And it's always helpful for us to be able to present kind of a fresh or a new perspective on that topic. 
it's such a big topic that it's important to find for someone who's Jewish or someone who's not some kind of interesting point of entry to that experience and to that phenomenon. And I will say briefly that I am the grandson of a Holocaust survivor. And so I am familiar with wanting to find a way to connect with that theme without it completely overwhelming me. Mm -hmm. And there's another film we're showing called Demon Box that actually shows right ahead of my neighbor Adolf in the same bill. And it's a short. Um, it is a really interesting film um, that is very self-deprecating and self-aware and kind of meta. It basically consists of a filmmaker commenting on his own film while you watch the film and kind of picking apart things, mentioning details we wouldn't have known if he hadn't told us. And so it ultimately is a way to examine how second-generation survivors, people who have family history related to the Holocaust, come to terms with it themselves in the present, and how they might, if they can, convey these stories and these ideas to their children, which is a really potent theme and one that I'm familiar with personally as well. So I think that's such an interesting film. I think that we paired those two because they both have dark humor and they both are kind of unpredictable in both tone and in terms of how the narrative goes. Um, I think that I would call Demon Box experimental mm -hmm. um, in terms of its approach. It's not something you see all that often and certainly not on this topic. So it's well worth seeing. And then another film that ties in very closely with the Holocaust theme or the Holocaust as a topic is Reckonings. Mm. And this is paired with Letter to a Pig. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk about these two films and then the decision to pair them? Sure. Yes, they are very different. I do think that what you have in both cases, again, is a look at what followed the Holocaust in one case with Reckonings, a very compelling look at the facts of the reparations process, how reparations to Jews after the Holocaust came to happen and what the negotiations looked like with the German government. And actually, we're going to have a producer of the film, uh, Karen Heilig, who also works for the Claims Conference organization. Um, we're going to have her do a Q&A with one of our community members about the film and about her involvement with negotiations with the German government. That will be via Zoom. Um, the film we're also showing online. So that's a very interesting thing to tune in for. Um, and of course, people can join and ask questions and so forth. Letter to a Pig is much more symbolic and lyrical. It is animated and uses mixed media. Um, it's a more kind of impressionistic, emotional approach to the topic of how the Holocaust continues to resonate, or in some cases, how it's difficult for it to resonate for young people. So in that film, again, not to give too much away, but there's a Holocaust survivor uh, in Israel giving a presentation to a class of, I think, high schoolers. And they are not finding it very easy to pay attention. But uh, one of the high schoolers kind of ends up in kind of a, what I would call a mind trip that takes her into the story of the survivor in a way that's a bit surrealistic. And I, I think it's a film that will potentially be polarizing because people will get different things from it. And some people will say, well, what was that about? But one of the things that I really liked about it is film, like any art form, has to sometimes leave you in a place where you're not sure what to make of it. And that's part of what you need to figure out mm -hmm. if you're engaging with it to figure out what does this mean to me? What do I take from it? What was the filmmaker trying to say? And so forth. 
Um, and, you know, we do on the website of the festival try to provide some additional information about the films, whether it's interviews with the filmmakers uh, in print or anything like that, that you can go to um, to look into it more. Generally, after viewing them is what I recommend. And something that just occurred to me, and I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this in light of uh, current political events, but right now there is a war in Gaza. Mm -hmm. um, in celebrating Jewish culture in this way and raising awareness about Jewish culture, is there also a certain amount of self-consciousness that it can be a somewhat fraught time to do so? Well, what I'll say about that is that the situation in Israel, in Palestine, the Middle East, has changed so much over the past few decades even that the festivals existed. And we always want to celebrate Jewish identity, but also examine it and sometimes in a way that can be a bit self-critical. Um, there's a film, A Borrowed Identity, that we're showing that is from a past year that was really beloved by audiences and the committee alike. And it includes a lot about how Israelis and Palestinians interact, but also presents things from more of a, a Palestinian point of view. And I think that many Jewish film festivals do include such films. It's a really fascinating collaboration between an Israeli Jewish director and a Palestinian author and screenwriter. And so I think that's certainly it was made years ago and won't address the specifics of the current situation. But I think that there is something there about how relationships can form and how fraught they can be, given the tensions that are surrounding them. Uh, in that area. Yeah, and we didn't program anything this year that specifically addresses the war because it's just too soon. Mm -hmm. um, but I imagine that it will be on people's minds. But we, we're presenting a diversity of perspectives on Jewish life and Jewish identity every year, regardless of what else is going on. Well, Neil, I want to thank you so much for coming in here and of talking course. about these films and then all of the, the ramifications that they entail. It's much appreciated. Absolutely. I'm very happy to be here. Spokane Jewish Film Festival director Neil Schindler there, talking about their 20th anniversary event. The SJFF hosts in-person screenings over two weekends, the first on January 27th and 28th, the second on February 3rd and 4th, and it also has a substantial online portion that continues until February 8th. The full film guide is available at sjff2024.eventive.org, where you can also purchase festival passes or individual tickets. The opening night gala is at the Montvale Event Center, and the other in-person screenings will be held in Gonzaga University's Jepson Center. And now, we close this week with Deborah Majewski, founder of the Baharat Dance Company. She recently won Spokane Arts Grant Award funding to create an Arabian-style market, or souk, in Spokane. The idea is still in the conceptual phase, but I talked to Deborah about her vision for the event and how it ties into her work as a dancer and choreographer with Baharat. Baharat means spices in Arabic, and our little saying is quality entertainment spiced with the flavors of the Middle East. And we do actually dance a lot of Arabian dance, and we also dance Turkish, uh, Persian, quite a few different dances from the Middle East and North Africa. I founded the company in 2004. 
I retired from performance in 2014, but I'm still very active creating choreographies, doing a lot of the cultural stuff, and I do most of the announcing because I can say the words. <laughs> <laughs> and what sparked your particular interest in the dance of this region? Actually, the music came first. My father had lived in North Africa, and he really loved the music, and every now and then at home we would listen to it. And then, actually, my first class I took July 1st, 1974, when Jodette Silhe was performing at Expo. She was the first belly dancer in Spokane, and I fell in love and have been studying the cultures and people and dances and foods and arts, et cetera, et cetera, of the Middle East and North Africa ever since. And what was it about the music and then later about the dance that really spoke to you? I don't know. I can't really say. It's like, why did anybody fall in love with their wife or their dog or waffles or whatever <laughs> they're in love with, you know? It's very elusive for me to intellectually describe it. And sticking with the spice metaphor or the flavor metaphor, what would you say is the flavor of this music or the flavor of this dance if you had to convey it to someone who hadn't experienced it before? Well, first of all, we would have to pick a country and perhaps sometimes even a village, because the one thing that most of these dances and most of the music has in common is it's very communal. It's never about just one person. In Arabic, there's a word, it is tarab, which means enchantment. And the thing about this word is you can never do it alone. Enchantment doesn't happen for one person or one instrument. It is the conglomeration of everything that's happening in the moment. The lighting's perfect. The people are in a perfect mood. The dancer is dancing perfectly. The musicians are all in sync with everything that's going on. And when you get there, and it's a rare and beautiful occasion, of course, it is sublime. And for this festival, now you received Saga funding to put yes. on a festival. So is it kind of an extension of Baharat? I would say not. What I want to have happen is I want a lot of different factions of the Middle Eastern community to come together, and we want to have what would be a smaller version of um, a souk. A uh, souk is the Arabic word for marketplace. And when I was in Cairo, I went to one of the most famous souks. It's called Khan al-Khalili. It's been there for, oh, hundreds of years and you can buy just about anything in there, I swear. I, I bought all kinds of things while I was there. And, and things from all over the world, actually. I'd like to make our souk be more about Middle Eastern goods and Middle Eastern services and Middle Eastern products and food and entertainment. So that's our goal, is to create a smaller version of what would be an Arab marketplace. And is that something that you imagine happening regularly, maybe annually, for example, or weekly? I don't know yet. I would like to experiment and see what happens. And if it gets very big, that would be great. And if, we, if it is very successful, I hear that Spokane in October now has sort of designated that to be Arabian Culture Month. And we're wondering whether we should wait until October or if we should do this in June we're still looking for a time. And this event is going to be more than just a, a marketplace. It's also going to have a cultural component, an arts and cultural component. Exactly, no? exactly. Uh, marketplaces always do if you look. 
they always say something about the culture and the people who are there selling or whatever they're doing. But I want to have components like uh, someone who can write your name for you in Arabic, some Turkish coffee and maybe a, a coffee ground reader. I used to, I was a house dancer at Azars for 12 years, and I also used to read Turkish coffee grounds for our customers every now and then. It was really fun, and I would like to include things like that. I, of course, want to have some food trucks. I know uh, some of the Arab musicians around, and I want to have them come and entertain, and we'll see what else is going to go on. It's a surprise for us yet also. And does this have an official name yet, or is that still in the works? I want to include the word souk, but that is going to also call for a name that has an explanation. So I'm thinking about something along the lines of souk, an Arabian market festival, something like that. Um, how about soukan? Does that, does that work? <laughs> that does not work for me. <laughs> if it works for you, you can keep calling me regularly and see if you can talk me into it. That was Baharat Dance Company founder Deborah Majewski talking about her Spokane Arts Grant Award funding for an Arabian-style market in Spokane. The market will be modeled after the souks you might find in Middle Eastern and North African countries, but with a distinct arts and cultural component. We'll aim to have more on that later in the year when it launches. In the meantime, if you'd like more information on Spokane Arts Grant Award recipients or the Saga program, visit spokanearts.org. This has been the Thursday Arts Preview, a show that keeps an eye on the past, present, and future of the art scene throughout the Inland Northwest. If you'd like to listen again or catch future episodes as soon as they air, subscribe to the Thursday Arts Preview podcast on major platforms like Spotify and Google and Apple Podcasts. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm E.J. Ionelli. Thursday Arts Preview receives support from Craven's Coffee, featuring Costa Rica Mariposa, produced by the Garcia family on their family farm. For over 30 years, from farmer to roaster to you.